Mm. It doesn't have to be coding. It can be anything else. But like to spend four hours per week. And I think that would be a good start getting established in the community. So four hours per week is usually doable for most folks. Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist at Intel, bringing you leading edge, free ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open source community. Let's get into it. While at KubeCon, I spoke with Nikita Raganoff, a staff software engineer at VMware who leads the Kubernetes engineering team. We discussed her background and how she got into open source contribution, as well as her current leadership in the Kubernetes community. I'm inspired by her story, and I think you will be too. Hi, Nikita. Thank you so much for taking time out of KubeCon to talk to me. Number one, I know you're very, very busy. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm glad to be here, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think the people listening to this podcast would really like to hear from you. I would like to hear really your whole story, but let's start just really quickly. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what your role is here at KubeCon. Sure, um, so my name is Nikita Raghunath, uh, and I'm I work as a staff software engineer at VMware, where I lead the Kubernetes engineering team. And I've been doing Kubernetes for a while, and I'm also on the CNCF Technical Oversight Committee, which basically means that if, there any, if there's anything technical and governance related across the whole of the CNCF ecosystem and CNCF projects, uh, I'm one of part of the team that handles it. Uh, I'm also a KubeCon plus CloudNativeCon co-chair for uh, Chicago, the next one in Paris in March, and there's also going to be one in North America, and we'll, we're going to be announcing the location on day three, so stay right, tuned for okay. that. Um, so as a co-chair, there's like a lot of stuff we do, and basically deciding the whole program, deciding what are the keynotes, what are the talks that get selected, and all of it. So yeah, I tend to do some cloud-native things. Yeah, quite a few. I'm, I'm I'm uh, wildly impressed that you find Thank time you. for all of these things, frankly. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit, let's go back back in time a little bit more. How did you first get into programming? That's really a question. Um, so when I was in school, like I think this must have been, what, fifth grade maybe? I don't really remember. Um, so I, I live in India, I grew up in India. And it used to get really, it still gets a little hot during the summers, a little too hot. And back then, the only place in my school which had air conditioning was my computer lab. <laughs> so That's funny. <laughs> I used to just try to find excuses to visit the computer lab, and I used to be like, uh, "Does anyone?" So like, one of the old, so the older kids more like had their computer programming classes. So I used to just ask if they like can teach me some of it, and I was to help them with their homework or just ask them to teach me what they're working on and so on, and find excuses to go to the computer lab. And then I met the older kids, tried to learn more about programming. I think it was, uh, oh my God, I don't remember, C++ or C or something like that back then. It was, this would have been sixth grade. Um, yeah, like it was actually my love for air conditioning that got me introduced to That's programming. That's hilarious. As somebody who comes from a very, very hot climate myself, I completely appreciate that. I, Where I'm, are you from? I am from Texas. I'm from Houston, Texas, which is basically a swamp. <laughs> and I, I, I completely identify. I, I think I was very, a very indoor kid, and, and I, yeah. I also, enjoy, you know, I, I was attracted to computers at a, at a yeah. very young age. You know, back then it was. Well, I won't, I won't, I won't give away my age and tell you what language <laughs> I first started with. But uh, 
But yeah, yeah I completely understand that. I, I think that's, uh, yeah, I identify greatly. Yeah, um, but I also want to call out one thing. So like I got introduced to programming languages then, but I didn't really pick it up and start playing with it until okay. after, like when I was in college. So uh, I think a lot of folks are like, oh, if I didn't start out early, does it mean that can I pick it, pick mm, up programming yeah, later in my career? Or I mean, I know I started in college, but I think people can pick it up even later on. And so it's not really necessary that you need to start programming very early in your career. Yeah. Well, so one of the reasons I wanted to hear more about you. So normally when I talk to people, I, I tend to focus on a technical topic or something like that. But in your case, I find your story so interesting that I really just wanted to, I want, I want people to hear about it because, again, I think there's, there's a, a parallel. And I think your story, I think, parallels a lot of people's, but also, to me, it highlights the value of understanding the value of, contri of contributing to open source from the get-go, kind of, yeah. you know, because a lot of us, I think it takes a lot of people potentially years to work up the courage to contribute to an open source project, but, but again, your story is very inspiring, I think, for people to just get out there and do it, just jump in, right? So, so it, tell us a little bit more about how you, how you, your evolution in programming, but then how you got involved in open source. Yeah, definitely. I was interested in programming, but my major in college was electronics engineering, which okay. which we didn't really have a lot of coding and writing like software and so on. But I was like, maybe this is something that I'm actually interested in and I should try it <laughs> out. Uh, but then I was just trying playing around with like toy projects, like creating, I don't know, websites or just very small mm -hmm. projects and I was putting them on GitHub. But then that wasn't really giving me the feels of, oh, I'm creating an impact to any projects across the world. And that's when I came to know about this thing called open source, where you can write code that's run in production for like enterprises and like Kubernetes, like billions of dollars run on right. Kubernetes. And I'm like, I can actually write code for it. And they, they'll accept my code. That's insane. Like, how does right? that work? So it's intimidating yeah, let, too. let me try it out. Um, so I actually attended GopherCon in India back in 2016, maybe. Uh, and that's when I, I, I just knew Go back then. And I, like everyone would just keep talking about Kubernetes. I was like, okay, this sounds like a cool thing. So I went back home, Googled more about it. And uh, back then Kubernetes was having like an internship program called Google Summer of Code. So CNCF mm, yes, was yep. working with the Google Summer of Code team for it and I applied uh, it was a very I did not know much about Kubernetes so I was applying I applied to the internship but I was also learning things on the fly and the maintainers of Kubernetes they were so nice they're so nice like even now like uh, just helping mentor and like they were open to learning people learning things on the fly as well so you don't need to know everything I think a lot of people think like, oh, I need to know everything before I apply to an internship. That's not true. Like you can just jump in. Yeah. As long as you're willing to learn, I think that should be okay. So I applied, got in. Uh, I worked on a feature called CRDs uh, in Kubernetes back then. So it, the CRDs didn't exist back then. It was TPRs, but CR like I helped create CRDs. Can you tell and, us about what, what CRDs oh, are? Definitely. Uh, so CRD stands for custom resource definitions and you can use them to extend Kubernetes and almost pretty much all of the operators or uh, custom controllers that we see today are built on CRDs. So like the whole cloud native ecosystem is just exploded uh, after CRDs came out. So I feel, honestly, I feel proud about yeah, all the work that I've done. Um, and I did the internship, but then I loved the experience so much 
that I continued working on it. So I think the one thing that actually helped me just stay on was the friends I made during my internship period. And it was just like, it was working with friends. It's not just working sure. with like just another community member. So it kind of built friends from all over the world and so on. And it was, it's such an amazing experience to see the impact of the code you write and the people you're mentoring. And uh, the people I mentor, they end up getting jobs in Cloud Native. And it just feels like, it feels like you can be a force multiplier in open source, yeah. kind of. And open source is people. It's it's exactly. and, and I, you know what what makes a community is the people in it. Definitely, and I, I, you can't really overstate that. So I wondered again because it, you, you really you know you I, it it sounds to me like you got involved again at a, at a very early age. Yeah. Um, not everybody does, and and that's yeah. okay, right? Yeah, um, definitely. I, uh, a lot of people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and, yeah. and inter inter technology later in life and then and then open source itself even later but i wonder what advice you have for both both people new to technology and new to programming and and um, new to other other uh, types of skills that one might have in the open source world what, what what advice would you have for getting started to be involved in an open source community that's a really good question um so I've, I work at VMware and I've been asking like a lot of engineers I work with who aren't in, in from in VMware who aren't involved in open source. I've been like working with them and a lot of people come to me, they're like, hey, I'm interested in getting involved in open source, contributing to Kubernetes and so on, but I don't know how to find the time to do it. So for a lot of folks, I feel like time is the biggest barrier because you have your day job and at the end of the day, like you don't want to court in the evenings, you want to like enjoy time with your friends and family and so yeah. on and do whatever you want. So I usually suggest a four hours per week model. Um, okay. So one hour, what I suggest is uh, read, read, like attend meetings of the topic that the project that you're interested in. One hour is skim through the mailing list, Slack channels, and so on. Just be active on Slack because people need to know who you are. So like talk to them as long as you like keep the communication going. That helps the maintainers know who you are. And the rest two hours of the like the framework uh, just focus on actually doing the heads down stuff that you have to do. Mm. It doesn't have to be coding, it can be anything else, but like just spend four hours per week. And I think that would be a good start getting established in the community. So four hours per week is usually doable for most folks. And a lot of folks have gotten started this way and they are able to like actually grow up the contributor ladder and so yeah. on. Uh, the other thing is like what you brought up was really interesting around different skill sets. Mm -hmm. So not, uh, I think it's a myth that open source is always about programming and writing right. code and so on. But there's so many other things that you can do. For instance, even within the Kubernetes project, uh, there's so many, we call it the non-code initiative. Uh, so there's so many other things that you can do. There's like we have a contributor marketing team that a lot of people don't know about. So it could be uh, there's a team that manages the Kubernetes Kate's contributors Twitter account. So like every all the tweets that need to go out, they sure. manage mm -hmm. all of the marketing around the whole the whole Kubernetes project. Um, there's there's a lot of this project management, this product management. Like we don't have a product management role as such, but there's like a lot of other things that you could do as well. So uh, there's room for everyone. Yeah, I, I think source. that's such a such a good reminder. Personally, I never felt I always had this baggage, right? I I did a lot of things associated with a an open source community. I worked for a, for a technology magazine. I wrote articles about about various things. I, I did a lot of things that were non-code related, but I never really felt like I was contributing until I did co contribute code. And I yeah. guess I get that that's my own personal issue, right? But I, I I think because of that, I I want to make 
extra effort to remind people that that doesn't have to be the way it is, right? You don't have to make a pull request for code. It can be a pull request for documentation. It can be, you yes. know, contributing by managing a Twitter account. There are so many things that, that are necessary, absolutely necessary for the success of a project. That's very interesting that you bring that up because what I, so I'm currently in the CNCF Technical Oversight Committee and my role over the years has uh, kind of evolved in the sense that now it's more strategy related or uh, I still write code, but then I'm also doing a lot of other stuff. And sometimes like when I do these other strategic uh, discussions about maybe what's the future of cloud native? What other areas in cloud native should we be looking at? AI, Wasm, there's also like special purpose operating systems, sure. a lot of observability, a lot of things going on. Um, but when technical leadership evolves to strategic initiatives and maybe not the same amount of coding, I've been kind of struggling like to like what just thinking about am I a software engineer anymore or like yeah, am I actually I what I'm doing is that technical leadership and then I talk to others and I'm like Check, yes what you're doing is technical yeah, leadership so I think we need to definitely kind of remind ourselves that what we do like leadership and technical even technical leadership doesn't have to be always about code and maybe yeah. it that's how it is like as people grow up in the ladder even in open source it, becomes like that, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a fantastic reminder. So again, getting back to this idea about encouraging people to contribute, to bring, yeah. what, bring what you have, bring who you are, and bring what you have, right? What are the, the major challenges you see that prevent people from getting involved and contributing back? And, you know, again, whether it's code, whether it's documentation, whether it's leadership, marketing, or what have you. It's a loaded question. <laughs> it is, a bit. Uh, I'm going to actually be talking some of that in my keynote tomorrow. Okay. Uh, but there's, there's a few. So there's one aspect of it which people know about. Uh, like it could be like finding time for open source and so on. And also, uh, like you said, it can be just like intimidating to open your first pull request. And like everyone's just going to see the code that you write and judge it. And I mean, I still... I used to feel a lot like scared to open a pull request and I used to like, I'm gonna hit the merge button right now and like I used to like sometimes do a countdown of just when I hit the opening the PR button and so on but one other aspect that I don't people I don't think think about so I'm from India and there's like globally I, I think a lot of open source projects are North America centric and mm -hmm. sometimes like there's just another set of challenges involved when you're spread across the globe. For instance, um, so one of the things that we're going to also talk about in my keynote is uh, financial struggles for folks getting started. So I know like a lot of folks in it. It depends. Like I've been a little privileged in my life, but I know a lot of folks or students or early career folks. They just don't have the right set of laptops to tinker with. Ah, okay, yes. Like you open Slack honestly and Google Chrome and like like you. You cannot compile Kubernetes anymore. So we've been trying to do some initiatives where people can just test on the cloud and using the CI infrastructure that CNCF has and things like that. But that's definitely like one big major barrier. Like people just don't have the right set of t laptops to work okay. things with. Uh, slightly related to financial struggles, but also just to attend KubeCon, you need visas and uh, uh, and visas are re really inexpensive and they're so hard to get. Uh, so a lot of folks that get, even if they get KubeCon scholarships, they just are not able to attend the conference even after getting sure. the scholarships. 
And I was, it's not just about India. I was talking to someone from Brazil, uh, someone who lived in Peru. So this is something that even the Latin American regions face. So I'm, I'm very glad that CNCF is trying to do a KubeCon India next year. So that's going to be interesting. Right. More accessible. Uh, another one, I have, so I'm doing a panel and one of my panelists is from Tokyo, Japan. And one thing he brought up was how like language barriers have played such an important role. And sometimes like people have trouble understanding his accent and there's just like so much back and forth. And there's like a lot of folks who may not feel maybe they're comfortable with written English but not spoken English and they just don't speak up in meetings. And when you don't speak up, people don't come to know who you are and this is like a barrier in growing up to the contributor sure, ladder sure. in open source. And so on. honestly like one anecdote is this was challenging my own bias, was I think I attended the meeting and there was someone who, it, it felt a little too blunt to me, like they did not say the highs and hellos and just kind of jumped right in. And I was like, oh, that's a little rude, but maybe that's just like a cultural barrier or something. And then I, when I talked to my panelists, like they mentioned that they sometimes just forget to say salutation phrases or just the highs and hellos. And it's not out of rudeness or just being like intentionally blunt. It's just a language barrier. So I think we all need to be just, it's a reminder to be empathetic, just a yeah, reminder to yeah. be kind and um, know that not everyone has the same levels of privilege to go through. So. Yeah, that's was quite a lot. No, no, that's a, that's a great answer. I completely understand that meeting etiquette is such a strange thing and can be so bound to certain cultural norms and be completely yeah. foreign to others. Yeah. And then there's, a, there's also just the basic humanity of nerves, right? It's yeah. incredibly difficult to to work up the courage to speak up in a meeting like that. Yeah. But going back to again ad- advice for for new contributors, what advice do you have for people who they've they've done the pull request, they've done the work. They've done whatever it is. How do you how do you negotiate the diplomacy necessary to get something merged? Oh my god, that's a <laughs> I know. Uh, as that's someone a who has struggled point. with this in the past. I mean, you know, what honestly uh, it is challenging. Like first, just so this is what I follow. So if I'm creating a pull request for a project that I already work on, so I just kind of ping the maintainers that are supposed to review the pull request and kind of follow up with them. Hey, can you review this and so on? Uh, so I can just talk about Kubernetes and the things I do there. So it can be sometimes in the areas that I work in very closely or sometimes even not in the areas that I work with closely as well. Uh, what really helps me, or if it's, if it's even if it's a newcomer, uh, create your PR, wait for at least two or three days because people can like people have busy lives and so on. But if you don't get a response within a certain amount of time, follow up on the Slack channels, ask them, like, just keep following up for a few days. But if you don't get a response, what I usually do, and diplomacy is a really good word here, what I usually do is I ping someone who works with the maintainer who's supposed to review the PR. Like, it could be, what usually helps me is honestly, like, if they're colleague, colleagues, so they can just kind of ping them on their internal Slack or whatever, whatever they use or email. Uh, because most folks sometimes check they might not check the open source Slack instance, but they will definitely check their internal Slack instance. And sometimes people come back, oh, sorry, like I was just taking a break from open source, and then, I'm, but I can review your PR. So I guess the TLDR is my suggestion would be, even if you don't, even if the person who's supposed to be responding doesn't respond, find someone who works with the person uh, and ping them. 
and try to see what can be done. So, or otherwise, even if all of these things don't work out, like escalate it in a sense, like talk to the Kubernetes steering committee, make them aware of these problems so they know what are the areas that are not mm -hmm. staffed well and they can start making decisions on how to do that, solve those problems better. So that's that's a good um, that's a kind of a nice segue actually. I, I wondered, you know, going back to the the challenges that we talked about earlier about language barriers, time zone barriers, yeah. cultural barriers, economic barriers. From the perspective of the community itself, how can the the Kubernetes and or any even any other yeah. open source community? How what are your thoughts on how to address those limitations from the community side? I mean, obviously you mentioned empathy and that sort of thing, but I wondered if there are other um, very more concrete steps that maybe things that are you're, you're already working on in the Kubernetes community. One thing I personally love is just async communication uh, instead of relying on meetings. But like we brought up time zones, mm -hmm. I have so many late meetings honestly right now. But then I've been trying to push for, hey, can we just take this async? So I try to move as much as it's possible async. And then one thing we've also tried is async meetings. So at a particular time every week, um, we have like the Slack bot post and some reminders on a Slack channel about particular topics and people just give their updates there. And it's kind of just like having a banter and a free flowing conversation on Slack instead of on a meeting. Uh, and that's actually helped get more people involved in some of the groups that are doing this, these async meetings. The other thing that I think people try to do is split meetings into two uh, time zone, so like one would be an APAC friendly one, one would be a North mm -hmm. America yes. friendly one. And that works if you have a sizable contributor base in both regions. Otherwise, there's been at least at least in some communities that are start out as very North America heavy. Uh, so most of the senior maintainers end up in the North, attend the North or, or any of one of them. And then the other meeting ends up with just folks who are getting started. And that kind of imbalance doesn't really help anyone, to right. be honest. So that's one of them. The other thing, language barriers, that's an interesting one because closed captioning is definitely one way. Like Zoom has support for closed captioning and so on. That really helps. Uh, one of my panelists is also a deaf community member. So CNCF also has a deaf and hard of hearing uh, working group. And they've been talking about improving accessibility for the deaf and hard of hearing community. And they mentioned that closed captioning is actually not enough because if they want to speak or they want to say something, uh, they usually have to type it out instead of like, they cannot use closed captioning. So what they actually need is interpreters. And if you actually see your in coupon, there are a few interpreters moving around uh, and that's been helpful. So I think we need to do more in this space of, uh, when we say like we want to be empathetic, we've got to actually take actionable steps right. to make sure that people are comfortable. It's not just about inviting diverse voices to the table. It's also that we ensure that we give them a meaningful seat, right? So I think I that's love something that. to keep in mind. Yeah. That, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so tell me, tell, me, tell me what else you're excited about. What are you most excited right now? And again, this could be within the community, it could be anywhere else, but what, what are you super excited about in open source technology? Oh, uh, there's a lot of new, interesting uh, areas that are popping up in cloud native right now. Uh, so personally, what I'm really looking forward to learn more about, and I'm still learning about this, is AI. It's like everywhere right now. Right. Uh, we're also forming, we also formed a working group, Artificial Intelligence in cloud, CNCF. Uh, so we've been kind of trying to 
have more folks join the working group to discuss some potential action items that we can do to take this forward. Uh, but there's two angles to it. So like one of the angles that we talk most about is like how can we use AI in cloud native? So I think there's a project called Kate's GPT, which looks at like, I think it hits the chat GPT API and then it looks at, okay, how can I, I don't audit my cluster and things like that. Uh, there's also like a lot of other exciting, I was attending the AI day yesterday, AI and HPC day at KubeCon. And there's a lot of exciting projects about using LLMs. Mm -hmm. So there was one project about uh, LLM back controllers. So they were telling Kubernetes, they, just, they were literally using speech to text. So they were telling Kubernetes, hey, can you create this pod for me? And it would actually parse what they were saying and then create a pod and like generate all the AI, so generative AI and all of those things. So there's a lot of exciting things happening. So this one side of the story is how can AI help cloud native? Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect is how can cloud native help AI engineers? So how can AI, AI engineers deploy these large language models and what can we make, like what can we do to make it easier for them? And then right now we do have MLOps, which talks about deploying uh, AI models on cloud, Kubernetes. Uh, but there's a lot more to do and we got to make it even more easier for them and kind of integrate it into the process, have like a CI-CD pipeline. So there's, there's so much more to do. So yeah. that's that space has definitely caught my attention. Yeah, I think it has everyone's and it's, it's uh, we're just at the, I mean, AI is not brand new, right? Yeah. It's, it's certainly not. But, but right now we're at this interesting inflection point where, where things are just getting started to accelerate. Yeah. And it is very exciting. Um, well, well, thank you so much. Is there anything that you wished that I had asked you that you wanted to say and you didn't get to? Um, I think that's it. So just coming back to the advice to new contributors, one thing that we see, like I've seen over the years, is that a lot of people come in and say, like, huh, where can I get started in open source? Or can you tell me where I can get started in Kubernetes? And honestly, I do not have the time and a lot of maintainers just don't have the time to handhold in a way and then tell them, like, okay, this is the areas that you can contribute to and so on. So one of my suggestions would be to do your research. It could be just like reading documentation or just like going through the open issues and seeing if there's something that you're interested in. Come back, tell us what you did. And if it's okay, like you don't know what areas you wanna jump into, that is fine. But tell us that you've done the research. So I, I know like if I'm putting in time, I'm investing time to help you, that you're gonna actually stick around. It's just nicer for me to know like, if I'm investing time in you, uh, there's like a future maintainer that's gonna come from here. So yeah, it's kind of fun. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you so much. Thank you so much, Catherine. I am, um, yeah, I, I think uh, Kubernetes is a better place with you in it. I will say that. Thank you. <laughs> Clear, very clearly. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com slash podcast and at Open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source.